21. Today we're beginning the final section of the Gospel of Matthew. And some of you are thinking, wow, finally. Um, but I want you to know the, the major portion of Matthew is the last week of Jesus' life. Um, in fact, in the Gospels, um, about a quarter of the Gospels just focus on the last week of Jesus' life. John's Gospel is about 47% of the, the book is just about the last week of Jesus' life. So even though we're getting in, there's still a lot ahead of us. He concludes his teaching ministry. He's betrayed. He's crucified. Rises from the dead and then charges the disciples to go forth to make disciples. So we still have a little bit to go. Um, but you also notice that each of the synoptic, synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, a great deal of time is spent on the Lord's last week. And the reason why is because these aren't just biographies about Jesus. Um, they're writing a Gospel. And a Gospel has basically two fundamental questions or issues that they are dealing with. Who is Christ and what did he do? So that's what the Gospel is about. It's not just saying a biography of this is what he did when he was 10. This is what happened to him when he was 14. This is what he did when he was 15. It's really, who is Christ? What did he do? And then for us reading it, what does that mean? How are we to respond to the things that Christ has done and what he's done for us? So as we look at today's verses, these two questions are being addressed and they will continue to be addressed until the end of the uh, Matthew. So let's take a look at Matthew 21, verses 1 through 11. Go ahead and read it at your tables. If somebody at your table would like to read it out loud, go ahead. Other re otherwise, just read it to yourself. But let's go ahead and read it. It is the week that Jesus is going into Jerusalem to suffer and to die for our sins. 
And the disciples, in reality, seem somewhat unaware of what all this really means. Again, they don't fully understand the significance of everything that's going to be taking place. So now, more than ever, the things that Jesus does are indications that every single action that he takes during this week is full of significance for the disciples as well as for us that there's no unintended action that's taking place. So when you look at the story, Jesus and his disciples are making their way into Jerusalem. It's Passover time, and it will seem like, you know, Jerusalem is just full of people. They say that an extra two, two and a half million people could end up in Jerusalem during this time. And so Jesus is coming to Jerusalem in a time when which most of Israel will see or hear about the events of these days. Um, what takes place won't be hearsay. It won't be said, you know, oh, I heard, I heard that Jesus raised Lazarus. Oh, I heard that Jesus healed a blind man. Oh, I heard that Jesus raised somebody from the dead. Oh, I heard that Jesus fed 5,000. There's going to be millions of people that are going to actually observe all of this taking place. So by doing this, at this time, you just can imagine like three or four things. Number one, by entering into Jerusalem this way, Jesus is evoking a display of enthusiasm on the part of his followers, on the parts of the crowds, for those people who are there because they want Jesus to do something miraculous or to conquer the Romans or whatever it is. But there's this huge crowd of people that are excited to see Jesus come in. And he knew that that enthusiasm of the crowds was going to provoke the religious leaders. Now the reason I say he knew that is because the religious leaders were provoked and Jesus knew everything. So it's not like this is some conclusion that I've got. Because you'll even see it when he tells the disciples to go in and find a donkey in a foal. He knew exactly where they were, and he knew exactly who was going to go get them. And he knew exactly what to say. So he knows what's going to happen. And it does. Uh, on the part of the Sanhedrin, they are more determined now to put an end to Jesus than they ever were. So Jesus is forcing the hand uh, of the Sanhedrins. He's forcing the Sanhedrin to respond to his timetable, not their timetable. He also announces it's the appointed time of his father. This is my appointed time. May this cup pass me by, but not your will, Lord, not mine. So he's going in knowing everything that is going to be taking place. Um... And again, he's going to fulfill the prophecy that is found in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Previously, Jesus had restrained the crowds. When he had done some kind of miracle, he just keep it down, you know, keep this down, don't tell everybody, just go back, show yourself to a priest, let him prove that you were healed, go and tell your fit. don't tell everybody. So, but now people are crying out, Hosanna. And he's not telling them, keep it down. He's not trying to keep it quiet. And again, going into Jerusalem this way, 
He's showing to all the people, this is what you wanted, but this is what you're going to get. This is what you wanted as far as a king, but this is the kind of king you're going to get. This is the kind of person you wanted to fulfill all your desires, dreams, wishes, hopes, whatever. But this is the savior you're going to get that's going to call you to a little bit different perspective. So Jesus is teaching us that he is the king, but he's not going to fit the expectations that the people have of what a king should look like. So on Friday evening, Jesus had arrived at Bethany at the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And at that time, they have a dinner for him. They have a party. And it's there that um, Mary anointed Jesus' feet with oil. The next morning, Sunday, Jesus and his disciples made their way to Jerusalem. They left Bethany. And as they get towards Jerusalem, they were passing the little town of Bethphage. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied in a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. Now I just find that very interesting. Go into the town, and immediately you will find a donkey and a foal. And if anybody wants it, or anybody says, What are you doing? Why are you stealing my donkey? Just say, the Lord wants it. And immediately they do it. Now, I don't know about, I, I have a hard time being that obedient to anybody. About anything. Gwen, this morning, said to me, when you go in the back room, would you please put the kids' clothes, because we had, all, we had the grandkids there, in the basket. And I looked at her. What basket? You know. <laughs> like, really, there's only going to be one basket back there, and it's one that you will recognize. Um, but, you know, like, <laughs> it doesn't take a break. These guys are saying, go get a donkey, go into town, immediately will be there, and they don't even say, what block, what, what entrance do I go in, you know, what, is the, what color is the donkey going to be? No questions, just do it. And how difficult is that for us when God says this, then we just say, okay, I'll do it. Um, because the emphasis is not on getting the two animals. Um, Jesus needed those animals to fulfill a prophecy. And again, notice his instructions to the disciples. The specific way Jesus refers to himself. If his instructions had followed a normal way of making a reference to himself, he would have told the disciples something like this. If anyone says to you who needs them, well, just tell them I do. Because isn't that how we communicate? You're going to the store or, or whatever, you're going to do something, and somebody says, well, what if they say, well, just tell them I sent you. Just tell them I sent you. He says, no, tell them the Lord. And it wasn't like a, just this sense of honor. Oh, oh, you mean the king of the universe, the creator, the lord of lords, the king of kings. That's, sure, go ahead, take the donkey. It's yours. I don't need it. Um, so they were not to respond as if it's making a request. 
it's a command. And I think that's a point we should keep in mind in our own lives. Jesus does not need to request, plead, beg, or state his case in order to get us to do something. All Jesus needs to do is to state what he wants from us, and it's our obligation to obey. We are under obligation to submit to all that he says, simply because of who he is. He is the Lord, and we are to obey. I mean, we were talking in the prayer room. I said, you know, sometimes the scripture is really simple. It's very hard to apply to our life but the principles there are fairly simple. Jesus says it, I obey it. Um, so Matthew 21, 6 tells us, the disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them. And Matthew 21, 4 and 5 tells us why. Uh, now this took place that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you. Gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Um, this certainly fits Jesus. It's an act of humility. It's an act of servanthood. So he is the king, but he is a humble king. He's there to not just judge, but to love, to show grace, to benefit, to provide a way of salvation for anybody. And so that's how he comes in. Um, he came to Jerusalem as Messiah, the king who would eventually become the Passover lamb. But the passage also just reminds me that if Jesus knew where that donkey was and where the foal was, I think Jesus knows where I am. And not only does he know where I am, he knows what I'm doing. And he knows what I'm saying. And he knows what I'm thinking. And this makes me sometimes very uncomfortable. Because we're always in the gaze of God. He always sees who we are, what we're doing, how we're doing it. And in all of that he's saying, and I love you. And I love you. Um, see, do we see our lives in the fact that Jesus sees us 24-7? You know, because I think if Christians really believed that Jesus sees them 24-7, loves them 24-7, cares for them 24-7, I think the church in the United States might look a little bit different. Um... So again, this passage reminds us again that our Lord is omniscient. He knows everything, and we just need to live that way, that he knows everything. Uh, now back to the prophecy in verses 4 and 5. Matthew tells us what messianic prophecy Jesus fulfilled by his action. By riding into Jerusalem on this foal, he is fulfilling Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. And this passage testifies that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah. But it also reveals some unexpected qualities about the Messiah. First of all, it says to the daughter of Zion, verse 5, Behold, your king is coming. 
Your king is coming. This isn't their king. It's my king. Jesus is my Lord, my king, my savior. And he comes to a, as a blessing. I've come to bless you. I've come to set you free. I've come to conquer death. I've come to conquer your problems. I've come to give you life. I've come to give you life abundant. So this is my king that is coming in to say these things about my life and about what he can do for me. Now, sometimes I, I have a hard time grasping that because it's not visible. And so it's hard sometimes to just say, these are the promises of God and how this is what my king is doing for me. And how am I going to be more in tune and in touch and listen to that? And he comes mounted on a donkey. He comes in humility. So how are we to serve one another? How are we to be great in the kingdom? The same way Jesus was. In humility. In humility. And again, that's a hard question to ask yourself. How do I show humility? Because this morning when Gwen said, just put the clothes in the basket... I don't want to do that. What basket? You know? <laughs> and, you know, and then I knew by asking that question that way, there's a good chance that she will get sarcastic with me, which then I could take up an offense. Um, <laughs> you know, know how to play those games. And sometimes I think we do the same thing with God. You know, we sort of play those games with God. That the Lord of the universe, the one who sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, riding into Jerusalem on a beast that he didn't own, with no bridle, no saddle, only garments spread over the back of the beast, is a picture of humility. And if the God of the universe would do that for us, to show us that kind of love, I don't think he's asking too much of us to respond in kind, to respond with our love. And then lastly, you see in verses 6 through 11, Jesus, by coming to Jerusalem this way, is demanding a response. Everything he does demands a response. We may have a difficult time finding that response. We may have a difficult time understanding what does that really look like, but he's always forcing a response. He forced his response to the Sanhedrin. He's saying... Um, I'm going to take, force you to take a position on me. And all of us have preconceptions of Jesus. But Jesus wants to define himself to us. So I'm talking to this lady, and she goes, I love Jesus, but her perception of Jesus isn't the same perception of Jesus in the New Testament. There are times... The part of it is the love, the grace, the forgiveness. Yes. But there's this other side that says, but he holds us accountable. You know, he, he forgives us, but we have to acknowledge that there's sin in us in order for him to forgive. And when you think that everything you do is perfectly okay, 
and Jesus just loves you and you can love Jesus and it's okay and it's all right. That's not the same Jesus of the New Testament. But of course, she wouldn't know that because she doesn't believe in the Bible. So she doesn't read it. And I think that there's a lot of people that have that kind of perspective on Jesus. So he's demanding a response from the people in Jerusalem. And again, he's demanding a response from anyone who reads this passage today. He demands a response from us. As Jesus actually enters in the city, the crowds join together and they, co they converge and they begin singing to him in terms of Psalm 118. They're throwing down their garments. They're throwing down their psalms, the palm branches. And all of that is a sign of honor. It's like throwing, putting out the red carpet. It's like doing an aisle runner for a wedding. This is showing an honor. And that's what they're doing. And Jesus' account indicates at least three sources for the large crowd that had uh, John's account of this gives us three sources. The first group of people that, that were there had come to Jerusalem for the Passover. And so they were out there and they were coming out to meet Jesus. Another part of the crowd was the crowd that was following Jesus because these were some of the people that had been in Lazarus' home. They were the ones that were following Jesus after he raised Lazarus from the dead. And so you can imagine all the commotion when these crowds converge. And they're just praising God. And they're crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Hosanna means save now. And that's exactly why Jesus was coming, to save them now. But what they meant for saving and what Jesus meant for saving were two different things. Their saving was save us from the outward oppression. Jesus was saying, I'm going to save you from the inward guilt. From the self-imposed prison that you put yourselves into by living the lives that you're living. So they, they got the terminology right, but they were coming from different dictionaries. And sometimes we do the same thing. We'll use the same word that we have different dictionaries as far as what we really mean by those words. And so did the people understand all that they were saying? No. For the most part, they did not understand. Because these were the same people that at the end of the week were going to be yelling, crucify him. Crucify him. If he's not going to overrule, over power the Romans, he's not our savior, crucify him. They did not fully understand. John 12, 16 states, these things his disciples did not understand at the first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. Eventually they got it. Again, the crowds are initially enthusiastic, but then they end up saying crucify him. Which gives us a good indication that maybe we shouldn't live life according to polls. Um, so Jesus knew exactly what he was going on with these crowds, and he was not allowing himself to be drawn along by them. He was going to conduct his father's business. And the crowd itself was a mixture of people who were present for various reasons. Some in the crowd admired Christ. They admired him. Others were confused or were curious. And how do we know that? Because of the questions that they're asking. 
and the crowd just attracts a people who join in. There'll be some people who just come to join in to see what's going on. Hey, I hear there's something really exciting going on. I mean, it's why crowds get together whenever some event. And you'll hear, you know, in the circle around the event, people say, what's going on? What's going on? Why are all these people here? You know, you just take a group of people, put them in downtown Aurora, take 10, 15 people, and get them all, and have them all looking up. And you'll be surprised how many people will come along and get up to the, that crowd of people and say, what's going on? What's going on? Jesus is returning. Okay, well, we'll go someplace else. <laughs> a man's going to jump. Oh, okay. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's interesting <laughs> what we will be attracted to. But you put a people there, and that's what's happening. You got the same thing going on in this crowd. Um... But it's important for us to understand that the lesson we learn from this, it's not just good to admire Jesus, or it's not just good to be curious about Jesus. The question is, have you embraced him? Have you fully embraced him as the Son of God and Savior of sinners? Have we acknowledged that he who claims to be more than that? Have we personally admitted that we are sinners in need of a Savior? sinners in need of grace, that we have trusted in him to forgive us of our sins, that we have acknowledged our sins and recognized that he loves us enough to forgive us, and once he's forgiven us, it's over, it's done, and we can go forward. See, admiring Jesus is nice, but it'll get us nowhere in the last days. You know, just being curious isn't going to get us anywhere. Um, another response from, comes from Jerusalem itself. The people in the city, and what's their response? Ignorance. What's their question? Who is this Jesus? Now, he's been in Jerusalem before, and yet people are saying, who is this? There's sort of a superficiality in their responses. And we know that the Pharisees were among this group. And the Pharisees, obviously, were there to be antagonists to just create anger and angst and questions. But Matthew is making it clear that all three of these responses are inadequate responses, and they will get us nothing but judgment. See, indifference to Jesus is defiance. Superficiality about Jesus is dangerous. And opposition to Jesus is fruitless. The only response, the only response that makes any differences at all is when we bow, when we kneel before Jesus. While we were praying, one person in the room that I saw was just kneeling before Jesus. Whether we do that physically or we just do that in our heart, that's the response that Jesus requires. Everything else is either curiosity, defiance, or superficiality, but it's not surrender. And when we come in to church and when we live our lives, if we're not in a perpetual state of surrendering, to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, 
letting go of our own agenda and saying, okay, God, how do you want me to live? How do you want me to make a difference? See, we need to bow the knee. Um, because when we do that, we're not acknowledging him as to be the King of Kings, the Lord and Savior of our, our life. We acknowledge him to be the Lord, our Lord. We acknowledge him to be the Savior, our Savior. We acknowledge that in him alone can we find salvation. And that is the only response that will make a difference for eternity. Every time this passage is read, in fact, every time you read the rest of these stories in, in Matthew, ask yourself a question. What do you think of Jesus? Because he's asking you in all these stories, who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? And there's only one saving response to all of it. Father, I just praise you and thank you for this day. Thank you for the opportunity that we have to come together to worship you. Lord, I thank you for each and every person that's here today. And Lord, I ask that you continue to minister to, to each of us. That we can go forth with hearts bowed, with knees bowed. Acknowledging you to be the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, our Savior. The one who loves. And that we are to share that with others. So as we leave here, continue to move in our hearts. That we can go forth to be a witness and a light. And Lord, we pray for those who aren't here. For whatever reasons, traveling, illness, whatever it may be that you continue to direct and guide and love and be in their lives, that they too can continue to experience the fullness of your love, your fullness of your grace, that they can experience life and life abundant, and we finally understand what that means from your perspective and not our perspective. Again, Father, I just praise you and thank you and ask your guidance now is our prayer in Christ's name. And all God's people said... Thank you.